This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. It's our job to look in the mirror and say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because everything is instructive with the Lord. He might not be punishing you, but he also, you know what he is doing? He's trying to perfect your faith. He's trying to strengthen you. He's trying to fix your eyes on heaven. He's trying to free you from the world. There's always something God is trying to redeem and accomplish through the difficulties that we go through in life. And sometimes they are disciplinary because we are into something we shouldn't be. When we go through times of trial, it's so easy to look at all of the chaos going on and focus on the negative. However, when we're facing those trials, God wants us to look to Him and say, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Today, Pastor Josh is going to be sharing a message that helps us turn our focus towards Him in this difficult race of life. God's intentions are never to make us suffer. He only desires to see us grow into who He knows we have the potential of being. Now. Here's Pastor Josh in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. As he concludes his message, Jesus offers the better race. God is interested in fathering his own children. So if you think, man, I'm working the system, I'm getting away with murder and sin and kind of play the religion card and be a Christian on Sunday morning and do whatever I want and everything's going great and everything's going well, one of two things is coming your way. Either a nice, firm scourging, as the Bible puts it, from your loving Heavenly Father who's not going to let you continue getting away with the sin you're choosing to live in, or absolutely nothing. Now, tell you what, that is the more frightening place to be in. That is the place where you probably should stop and look in the mirror for a moment and say, am I playing church? Am I playing games with God? Or have I surrendered my life, my sin, Do I know him as my savior? Have I truly placed my complete and utter faith and trust in Jesus and been adopted into the family of God? And the good news on both fronts is that God is not slow to receive you. In fact, this whole passage, we'll see in a moment, is about coming into the fullness of God's grace, not falling short of God's grace, but embracing the grace of God in your life. If you're not in the family of God, then stop the path you're going on. Turn around and come into, put your faith and trust in Jesus today. And if you are in the family of God, just know that he loves you enough to redirect your course if you're starting to move in the wrong direction. When God chastens us, it's proof of his sonship, of our sonship and his commitment to our spiritual growth. I love how Warren Wearsby puts it. He says, the father does not want us to be pampered babies. He wants us to become mature adult sons and daughters who can be trusted with the responsibilities of life. And may I add, the responsibilities of his kingdom. Right? The only children who don't get disciplined and get their way are called spoiled. <laughs> well, he's not done yet. He continues this analogy in verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, And we paid them respect. 
Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our our human fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. So you might just want to jot that quickly down, that the ultimate goal of God's discipline is not so that he can get rid of his, get out his anger. It's so that you can partake of his holiness, so that you can experience the blessings of righteousness in your life. It's all about what he wants for you out of his holiness. But verse 11, notice, now no chase, I love this, You would think it's obvious, but I I love that he just puts it in there. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It gives us the nature of discipline itself. Ask a child three minutes after being disciplined if they're grateful for it. It will be a resounding no. It's not fair. I don't get it. Why are you such this? Why are you so that? Why don't you let me do anything I want? And it will just go on and on and on. But ask a 30-year-old who's had loving, consistent discipline in their lives for their whole life if they appreciate discipline. Then they will say, oh, yeah, I was really grateful someone cared enough to, like, redirect my path and keep me from things that would hurt me, right? There is... Discipline is one of those things where it's a temporary pain for a more permanent pleasure. That's what discipline is. And I love that God does this. You might ask, Josh, what does discipline look like? Well, it looks different for all of us. When I was a young buck pastor in my 20s, I thought, man, I, I certainly have something to offer this the church. And if some church just recognizes that, they'll be really blessed by giving me a position. And then someone did. They hired me. Oh, good. I'm, I'm going to you know, be a real, real benefit to this church. Well, let's just say that God didn't allow that thinking and that mindset to last very long. He put me, my first assignment, he put me with a pastor who loved me enough to see my gifts but not put up with my immaturities and my failures and my insecurities and my gaps in certain areas of life and ministry. He rode me pretty hard. He penalized my laziness. He corrected my forgetfulness. He didn't accept my lack of follow-through. He challenged my work ethic and my priorities I still remember we, one day he, he walks in my office and said, Josh, get in the car. So I got in his car and we drove and we pulled into Staples or Office Max or something. And we were walking down the aisles and he says, okay, see that, get that notepad right there. Okay. Walk down another aisle. Okay. Pick out a pen that really is comfortable that you really like. Get some pencils. And so we got all this stuff and we go check out and we're sitting in the car and he looks at me and says, Josh, pull out that, pull out that pencil. I'm pulling out this pencil. He says, Josh, the shortest pencil is better than the longest memory. Will you please write things down? <laughs> it's like, that's so mean. It, 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 yeah, of course, it was pretty mean. But it, it, I was like horrible. I would walk out of a staff meeting with like 10 instructions and I wouldn't do any of them. 
Because I couldn't remember. I'm just, now, now trust me, I'm not the bastion of organization and <laughs> anymore right now than I probably was back then. But I still remember that. Why? Because later I was grateful that I left that assignment actually more prepared for the actual real ministry that would face me as a pastor. And I learned how to be diligent, and I learned integrity, and I learned character, and I learned hard work, and I learned patience. And that took, that in my opinion was one of God's instructive disciplinary calls in my life. So what is it for you? I don't know. Maybe you're finally starting to recognize the connection between sin you've been ignoring or dismissing and the effects it's having on your relationships. And the Lord's just starting to show you, see see the connection? It's all connected. Maybe it's that thing that won't go away. Now, I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Listen carefully. Not every hard, difficult, or negative thing we experience in life is God trying to tell us we're in trouble for something. Raise your hand if you heard me say that. I don't want, what I don't want you to, oh, you know, I'm experiencing something difficult. God's trying to punish me. No, he's not. It's our job to look in the mirror and say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because everything is instructive with the Lord. He might not be punishing you, but he also, you know what he is doing? He's trying to perfect your faith. He's trying to strengthen you. He's trying to fix your eyes on heaven. He's trying to free you from the world. There's always something God is trying to redeem and accomplish through the difficulties that we go through in life. And sometimes they are disciplinary because we are into something we shouldn't be. Secondly, and we'll end in this next passage, so we need to run our race by embracing God's discipline in our lives. Number two, we must run the race by restoring our spiritual vitality. By restoring our spiritual vitality. Look at verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. So again, the picture is either A, the person who's been running the marathon has just become so exhausted that they've now assumed a posture of weakness. I can't go anymore. Has anyone ever felt like that? I can't do it anymore. Your knees are like shaking and your hands are hanging down. Why? Because it's a, it's a place of weakness. It's a place of exhaustion, of tiredness. Can't go anymore. Can't do anymore. And apparently the Hebrews who were reading this were on the fence about whether or not they were even going to keep going with Jesus. Life's getting tough. We're getting persecuted. I don't know about this. And the author says, no, you have a responsibility to respond to the grace of God. And to respond when you see Jesus who ran his race and endured to the end and respond to that great cloud of witnesses, not by giving up and falling over and sitting at the wayside, but by getting yourself up and running the tough race that's before you. This isn't some sort of like do it yourself, pick yourself up by your own bootstrap mentality. No, God provides the strength, but we must respond to his provision. We must respond to grasping that grace for our lives and not giving up when we feel tired and worn out. We need to strengthen what remains. I think that many people have fallen into a race where they're just content to kind of half-heartedly run the race so they don't get too tired, they don't get too exhausted. I have seen the progress of years 
I felt the effects of it myself, you know? I've watched a new believer, young new believer, come into the fold, and they're like, they're like sharing the gospel everywhere they go, and they're passionate, and they're zealous, and yeah, they're kind of maybe a little wacky in some things, and they don't get, they don't got all their belief systems together yet, but they, we met Jesus, and it's just the best thing. Hey, how can you guys, and, and the older Christians would be like, oh, you know, they'll season out. <laughs> they'll level out a little bit, and you know, when they get some years with the Lord. God forbid that you level out. God forbid that you get older in the Lord and less passionate and less zealous and less purposeful and less intentional about the race. In fact, if you are older in the Lord, no offense, but you're closer to your finish line. Get some passion. Get some vision. Get zealous for the things of the Lord. Let the young people who come to the Lord and think it's the best thing think that they have a lot of room to grow when they see your life. Strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make the paths in front of you straight so that your weakness won't be dislocated, but it can be strengthened and healed. I have this vivid memory of something my dad told me when I was young. I had to be probably 10 or 11 years old and I had to chop firewood and stack it in the back. It was one of my chores. My dad showed me how to use an axe, and he would watch me. He didn't, like, leave a nine-year-old out there with an axe. Oh, I don't know, maybe that, maybe that you would do that here. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I just remember one time, and I don't know why this memory stuck in my mind, and I was, like, trying to break this piece of wood, and it, wasn't, it was, like, falling over, and I couldn't, I couldn't get it. And I was whining to my dad, Dad, I can't do it. I'll never forget it. It's like a lesson he probably was just frustrated. He probably would never remember saying this to me, but he, I just remember him grabbing that ax and he said, son, sometimes when you feel like you can't go anymore, you just got to get your strength up like a man and do it. And he chopped that thing in half. And I, that just stuck in my mind. Like years before Nike ever said, just do it, my dad was saying it. <laughs> By God's strength, we can endure and press on and become strong again by his spirit. And notice how practically, and we're going to end here, but this, I, I need you to guys to tune in with me because this is powerful. Because he gives us ways in which we might fall. In verse 14, he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord Looking carefully, that's close examination. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now there's a phrase right there. He says, look carefully lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God. What that doesn't mean is that somehow God's grace has a limit. Like God's grace falls short of people's sin. No, that's not what it means. God's grace has no limits. Who has limits? We do. To fall short of God's grace means that I come short of fully embracing God's grace in my life because of certain things. And here he tells us what those things are. Number one, he says, it's from roots of bitterness that spring up and take hold in a person's life. A root of bitterness will keep you stuck on the track will keep you from running the race that God has set before you. A root of bitterness. And here he expresses that it's manifested in pursuing peace with all people. And I have seen this 
to be true, that a bitter root always produces bitter fruit. Not only for you, but notice what it says, lest many become defiled. Bitterness doesn't just affect your relationship with the Lord and your perspective about other people. Bitterness affects all the other people that you're spewing your bitterness on. Because now, they didn't know anything, but now they know what you think about so-and-so, and about what he said this and she did this. And so now their interactions are formed on your experiences and your opinions that are rooted in unforgiveness and bitterness because of what someone else did to you. And you might say, I just can't get over it. I can't forgive and let go of the things that that person did to me and the hurt they caused me and the things that were said or the things that were done. And first, I want to empathize with that feeling. Secondly, I want to challenge you in something. You might say, there's, there's too far of a gap between me and that other person for me to ever be able to forgive them. Let me ask you this. Is the gap between you and the other person anywhere close to the gap that existed between you and God before you knew him? I'll tell you that it's not even on the same plane. You think that person's your enemy? You're both humans. You were an enemy of God on a level you can't even understand. The Bible says he reconciled us to himself through the blood of his cross. And when we take that same cross and we apply it into the situations and to the people that have hurt us, all of a sudden the cross removes the roots of bitterness and it replaces it with roots of grace. Because here he says he links bitterness and falling short of the grace of God together because he he is in, in essence saying, if you say I've experienced God's grace in my life, he's forgiven me of every sin, he's drawn me near to himself, but I cannot extend that grace to anyone else when they hurt me, then you have fallen short of the grace of God. Now please again, listen to what I'm, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there's not wisdom in having boundaries with people who are consistent in their inappropriate behavior. I am not saying that you need to be vulnerable and trust everyone in the name of forgiveness simply because. I am not saying that there aren't legitimate issues that should be dealt with of sin in the lives of people that have done things to you or you have done to them. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying no Christian who wants to embrace and run their race effectively can do so by holding and harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards other people. You have to release that before it starts contaminating everything. And sometimes it's a daily release. And sometimes it's a daily prayer of letting go and applying the cross into that situation once again and releasing that person and that situation to the Lord Notice here he says, pursue peace with all people and don't let that bitterness cause trouble. And then he adds in verse 16, lest there be any fornicator, okay, that's speaking of sexual immorality, or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." So Esau is another example of a biblical character who fell short of the grace of God. You notice Esau is not in the hall of faith. Why? Was God's grace any less available to Esau than it was to Jacob or to anyone else? No, same grace, same availability, 
But Esau had this one hang up. Esau was willing to trade eternal blessings for temporary fulfillment, for temporary fleshly passions. Christian, don't ever trade a future eternal blessing for a present temporary lust. Eat now and think about the consequences later. That's what Esau's mentality was when he came in from hunting and all he could hear was the groans of his stomach. I'm so hungry, I'm so hungry, I gotta eat. And Jacob being a deceiver and a sly character, he's like, I'll make you your favorite food. And he's like, ah, me hunt, me eat, you know? Just manly instinct and just, just sign over, you know, just, just your birthright, ah, no big deal. Oh yeah, whatever, whatever, just give me food. That came back to haunt Esau when it was time to receive the blessing that he had given away for a perishing, temporary moment of fleshly satisfaction. And that is why he ties Esau's behavior to fornication. Because nothing more quickly destroys a blessing from God than a lust-filled action of sexuality. Nothing destroys marriages faster, families faster, relationships faster, callings of God faster, future blessings of the Lord faster, than me want, me take, without considering the consequences of what you're actually forfeiting. And listen, if by the time in this message you are a person who is hearing me and realizing, man, I've already planted some seeds that I can't uproot. I've already, I've already got weeds in my life that I can't pull out. I've already made decisions that I've forfeited for. Here's where the grace of God comes in. You can still fully embrace the grace of God because you are still alive. You still have a future ahead of you. And you might not be able to change the hurts and the mistakes of your past. But what you can do is say, Lord, help me plant better for the future. Redeem the things that have been stolen because of sin. But what you don't want to do is continue to be an Esau. Continue to sacrifice everything God wants for you for what you want. And this is why he tells us to pursue holiness. For holiness gives us a path to follow that is in line with God's will for our life. And so that is where we're going to end the chapter. As he continues, he talks about Mount Zion and the mountain of the Lord and kind of closes with some exhortations. And then chapter 13, we get into all the practical applications of the deep theology we've been studying. How does this apply to family? How does this apply to your marriage? How does this apply to everything else in relationships? Good stuff. But for today, I'll take you all the way back to his initial exhortation in Hebrews 3. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion where they perished in the wilderness. Respond to God's grace. Receive God's instruction. Embrace his discipline in your life. Because if he's doing that to you, it's because he loves you more than you could ever know. This has been another edition of The Ascending Life, a ministry of Grace Calvary Church with Pastor Josh Blevins. 
Thanks for tuning in as we study the book of Hebrews together. If this teaching blessed you in any way, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 816-279-2090 and let us know more about you and what we can join you in prayer for. That number again is 816-279-2090. Or you can connect with us at theascendinglife.com. We're so glad you've been listening today to The Ascending Life, but we want to make sure this isn't your only source of spiritual nourishment. The Bible urges all of us to get involved in a local church, not just for the benefit of the body of Christ, but also for your growth on your own faith journey. If you live in or are visiting the St. Joseph area, we'd like to personally invite you to join us at Grace Calvary Church. We meet each Sunday at 8 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us. You can expect a time of fellowship, including worship and Bible study. For directions and more about Grace Calvary Church, visit our website at theascendinglife.com. Again, the website is theascendinglife.com. We hope to see you there. Our time with you today is coming to an end, but we're so glad you tuned in to today's message from Hebrews. Be sure to join Pastor Josh next time to learn more from God's Word, right here on The Ascending Life. Sin